Wayne was hassling me about wearing my marrying and bearing suit this morning. I hope I don't bury you. The Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism begins with the question, what is the chief purpose of man? And the answer that's given is the chief purpose of man is to know God and to enjoy Him forever. That's what we were made for, to know God and to enjoy Him forever. As uh, Augustine put it, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. See, that's what our hearts are aching for, to be with God. But usually we're not aware of this. What our hearts are longing for is to go fishing, or to go skiing, or snowmobiling, or, or to go to a movie, or to take a walk with someone we love down the green belt. You know, and as good as these things are, they're merely dim reflections of the satisfaction, the contentment, and joy of being with our God. The scripture tells us that the angels around the throne of God are constantly worshiping, constantly singing His praises and shouting His praises. Now, why are they doing that? Are they, are they just fancy tape recorders that have been programmed to say praise over and over and over again? No, they love to be around the throne. It is such a wonderful experience for them that they crowd around, they press in, and, and just the, the, the delight of being there causes their praise to, to involuntarily and spontaneously erupt out of them. They can't stop it. They can't help it. It's just like uh, if, if you were to go on that dream fishing trip and it was the most beautiful environment you'd ever been in, the day was gorgeous, you couldn't help but say to your buddy, this is great, this is fantastic, this is beautiful, it doesn't get any better than this. You wouldn't be pressured into saying this, it wouldn't be like somebody was telling you to say this kind of stuff. The feelings inside of you just have to come out, you've got to say it, even if nobody was around, you'd say it. It said, this is wonderful, this is fantastic. And that's what praise is all about. That it comes out just because we've seen something gorgeous. We've seen something wonderful. This is what eternity is going to be like. This is what we are going to enjoy with God forever. As we're around Him, just being overwhelmed with the delight of being in His presence. It's going to be like the, the best fishing trip the, the best movie, the best meal, the best kiss, the best uh, sunset all rolled into one and multiplied over and over and over again. It's just going to overwhelm us. Well, that's what we have to look forward to in eternity. But the passage we're going to be looking at in Hebrews 4 this morning tells us that we can start that right now. We don't wait. We march right on into the throne room of God right now. Knowing God and enjoying Him forever starts right now. So turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews 4. We'll be looking at the end of the chapter, starting with verse 14. Let me read just the uh, last three verses of, of, of chapter 4 of Hebrews. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. One of the difficult things about studying this book, the book of Hebrews, is that this book was definitely written to an oriental mindset. And we, with our our Western way of thinking, expect arguments to be laid out in in a certain manner. And when they aren't, it's very difficult for us to follow. We, from the West, our, our expectation is that arguments will be developed in a linear fashion, one point right after the other. Where the book of Hebrews, as is true of a lot of the characteristic Jewish books, develops their arguments in a circular fashion. There's a circular development. If you've been following along, you'll notice that the passage I just read is very similar to the end of chapter 2 of Hebrews talking about the high priest, talking about um, what Jesus as the high priest uh, went through on his life here and can identify with us. And when we get to the end of the passage, we're going to be looking at this morning, verse 10 of chapter 5, he starts talking about Melchizedek. And we'll find him picking up that argument in chapter 7. The way he develops it is that it makes a circle, comes full circle, then moves on and comes full circle and moves on. And that's the way that the arguments are developed. But as a result, sometimes it's hard to follow where he's going. So what I would like to do, um, with your permission, actually with or without it, <laughs> what I would like to do is to uh, reorganize very slightly our passage here. What I'd like to do is tell you what these four, these three verses are are roughly trying to say, and then go on to the rest of his argument, and then come back to these verses. Because what he says here, in this first paragraph, what he does is he makes an assertion, he makes a proposition, and that is that we have a great high priest. And because we have a great high priest, there there are two implications. The first implication is that we should hold fast to our confession. And the second implication is, because we have such a great high priest, let us walk boldly into the throne room of God to receive help. You see, but both of those instructions are contingent on the fact that we have a great high priest. And because of that, we can do these two things. So what he goes on to do in the next ten verses is to demonstrate, to argue that we do have a great high priest. And by establishing that, then we know we can do these two things. We can hold fast to our confession, and we can walk boldly into the throne room of God. So what I would like to do is to look at his discussion, to look at his defense of that assertion that we have a great high priest. And that's what he does, first ten verses of chapter five. So let's go on to that, and we'll come back. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of, because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Okay, what he does in these four verses, the first four verses of this section, is to describe the qualifications of a high priest. These are just in general, when you have a high priest, this is what the scripture says a high priest must be. And the first qualification is that as man's representative to God, he must be a man who can sympathize 
with mankind. He can understand what they're going through. And that's the first qualification. I think the, the words he uses here are interesting. When he says he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, the term gently means moderately, in between extremes. And the extremes that he's talking about in this case, in between the extreme of, of indifference and, and, and toleration of everything and the extreme of, of anger, of, of being grossed out by people's sins and pushing them away. See, in other words, the high priest had to be someone who, when he was confronted with the sins of the people, didn't respond, react in anger, but as an honest person, uh, realized that he was capable of just as rotten stuff. But on the other hand, he couldn't just ignore it. He couldn't just say, it's okay. Because sin is not okay. And, and we don't do people any good by saying, it's okay. It's no big deal. Sin is a big deal. And as we'll see in a few minutes, the high priest was also God's representative to man, as well as man's representative to God. And as God's representative, if he were to tell people, it's okay, it's no big deal, he would be lying about God. He would be leading people away from the true God to the God of our imagination who condones everything. People, God does not condone sin. He never has and he never will. But he forgives. In fact, he is anxious to forgive sin. And that's why it's so important that we face our sins honestly, openly, and come and enjoy the benefit of that forgiveness. Anyway, he says, The high priest was able to sympathize with our weakness, to deal gently with us who sin out of ignorance and delusion. As Charles Barkley put it, not getting angry at their fault, but not condoning it. A gentle yet powerful sympathy, which by its very patience directs a man back to the right way. Now some of us may be distracted here by the fact that we're talking about sins that come out of ignorance, out of being misguided. Well, what about people like me whose sin and they know full well what they're doing is wrong? I mean, we're not talking ignorance here. I know that I'm doing what I'm doing is wrong, but I do it anyway. Is this what he's talking about? How does this fit in? Or is this irrelevant to, to his discussion? Well, I think it's important to understand the Old Testament distinction, the laws of the Old Testament, distinguished between sins of ignorance and what they call high-handed sin. The sins of ignorance were what the sacrifices were intended to cover. There was no sacrifice to cover high-handed sin. But we also have to understand clearly that distinction. Because the sins of ignorance, the sins of being misguided, not only include those times when we sin because we didn't know that that was a sin. I mean, I didn't know that it was illegal to turn left across a double yellow line into a driveway. Unfortunately, the officer behind me knew that. But I didn't know that. It also, it not only includes those things we didn't know. Nobody ever told us. We hadn't seen it in Scripture yet. But it also includes those things, those sins that come out of our, our confused attempts to find joy or satisfaction in the wrong places. It covers those, those attempts those foolish attempts 
to try to, 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 to soothe the pain that's deep inside. We, we think that, that if I take this drug, use this chemical, or, or if, if, if I get involved in this improper sexual relationship, or if I, if I treat my spouse or my children harshly, or I pass on that little bit of gossip, or I tear myself down inside my head and inside my heart, that somehow that will soothe the pain in there. Somehow that will cover the insecurity. But it doesn't. And it just leaves us filled with remorse and sorrow and repentance. But see, sins of ignorance include those sins that come out of our misguided, our foolish efforts to meet our own needs by ourselves and for ourselves. However, on the other hand, a high-handed sin is sin that is, is cold and defiant rebellion against God, shaking our fist in His face and saying, I can do as I please. And there is no repentance. For this kind of sin, there is no sacrifice. Because there's no repentance, there's no desire for reconciliation with the great I Am. So as a result, there is no sacrifice that can cover it. Well, the high priest understands our foolish attempts to try to provide for ourselves what only God can provide for us. He understands these things because he's got the same weaknesses we have. He's got the same tendency toward these things. In fact, on on the Day of Atonement, he had to first offer sacrifice for himself and for his family before he could offer sacrifice for anyone else. So, in verse 4, we have the other qualification. In verse, up to this point, in verse 1, 2, and 3, he describes the, the qualification of a high priest that as man's representative to God, he has to be able to, to sympathize, to understand men. Now, the other half of that is that, he, that, that the high priest is God's representative to man, and therefore God gets to choose him. He gets to decide who his representative is. No one can just go in and grab that himself. That's what verse 4 says. That God has the right to choose his representative. So those are the two qualifications. That he'd be a man that can sympathize with the the weakness of mankind and that God gets to choose his own representative. What our author, our writer, does for us at this point then is to... Uh, having described and established the criteria, he shows us how Jesus meets those qualifications. And as is true of, 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 of a, a circular development, he starts with the last first, because that's where it flows. It flows from the description that God gets to choose, and now he'll describe how God chose Jesus. Listen to vi- verse 5 and 6. He says, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, But he who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Just as he he says also in another passage, Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He says, Jesus did not make himself high priest. Jesus didn't push and shove his way in. He didn't demand this position. He didn't immediately jump in and start a campaign to have the high priest of his day thrown out of office so he could take his rightful position. The high priest of Jesus' day got there by, uh, by buying the position. He had no right to it. But Jesus didn't take matters into his own hands and start trying to change things. He trusted his father 
He, he let God exalt him at the proper time. Over and over in Scripture, throughout the Scriptures, we see this pointed out as one of the, the, the most important lessons that Jesus demonstrated for us. That he, he, he humbled himself before the mighty hand of God so that God could exalt him at the proper time. Now, our tendency, our natural tendency, is to begin to try to, to take things into our own hands, to push ourselves into positions of more prominence, more prestige. We do this at our jobs. We do this in our ministries. We do it in our relationships, always talking about ourselves, our stories, our qualities. This is exactly the opposite of the example our Lord gave us. He, when, when, when God gave him a position of honor, he accepted it. But he never pursued it. He never took things into his own hands and pushed and shoved and manipulated his way into prominence by, by, by climbing over people or domineering people. Instead, he focused on loving the people around him, building them up. And he left his reputation and his position to the Father. That's the example that he has for us. So the quotes here, in, in verses 5 and 6, are there to demonstrate to us that it was the Father that chose Jesus. These are both quotes from the Psalms. The first one is Psalms 2, and the second one is Psalms 110. And both of these are coronation psalms. Psalms that were to be read when a, when a leader was installed as the leader. The, the point, again, is that when Jesus had been resurrected... He ascended into heaven, into the throne room of God. There he was installed as the ultimate leader of his people, the ultimate high priest. And God installed him there. God chose to place him there and to to say these things that are true about Jesus. Now, if you've read that first one from Psalm 2 about today, uh, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. It may sound a little bit like Jesus became God's son at the ascension, at the, at the point he was resurrected and, and ascended into heaven. And then before that, somehow, maybe he was just a, an ordinary man. That's not true. That's not what the, the, the scriptures teach. Like I said, this is a coronation psalm, a psalm to be read when he is installed as a leader. Both Paul and, and Peter make it clear that when Jesus was resurrected, that was God declaring with power that Jesus is the Son of God. There was proof, positive, uncontrovertible proof that Jesus is who he said he was, who he always had been, the Son of God. And again, it was God who declared him his Son. It was God who installed him, appointed him our high priest. It was God who chose him as his representative to us. So that's the point. Having established that Jesus was chosen by God, he didn't push his way in there, he didn't force his way. God chose him and established him as our high priest. Our writer now goes on to the other criteria. That Jesus is able to identify with us, understand us, sympathize with us. And that's what he argues in verses 7 through 10. He says, In the days of his flesh... He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who's able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, 
he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. <coughs> Excuse me. Here we, our writer says that there were times during Jesus' life when he was hurting so badly that he screamed in anguish. That's what, what the, the, the words literally suggest here. The words of violence, of shouting, of being in such bad pain that he was crying and he was begging, pleading with the Father. He went through that. He knows what it feels like to do that, as do many of us here. To really be hurting and saying, God, help me. And at the time, Jesus wasn't necessarily feeling a lot of help. What I think uh, the author has in mind, it seems to be Jesus' prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. When he was dealing with the fact that he didn't want to die. He didn't want to go through it. The day before, he'd been talking to his disciples and he said, hey, I'm struggling. He said, my soul is troubled within me. Because he knew that he was headed to Jerusalem to die. But at that, time, at that time, he said, but this is right. This is good. This is what I came for, to die. So let's go ahead. And he said, Father, glorify your name. He was ready to do it. It all seemed reasonable. It seemed logical. He knew the plan and he knew it was a good plan. But now, when the time has come, when he's in the midst of it, boy, it's a whole different feeling. It's so much more intense when it's, he's facing actually doing it. And the struggle is on. And he's going through that anguish and, and that confusion. Jesus knows the difference between examining something in, in the cool, calm, objective light, considering all the reasons, and the difference between that and the feeling of confusion and disorientation that comes when we're in the midst of suffering, in the midst of, of strong emotion, of passion. And he knows the feeling. He knows how much harder it is to hold on at those times. How much more difficult. At that point, he was asking the Father, he said, if there's any way possible, let's come up with a different plan. Let's, let's, let's not do it this way. The Father said, no. This is the way, this is the only way. And so Jesus said, not my will, but yours, Father. Again, it's one thing for us to know what we should do, and we're sitting in church and talking about it, sitting in a Sunday school class or a growth group and saying, yes, I know this is the truth. When I'm in this situation, this is how I should respond. I mean, how many Christian young people swear they will never get sexually involved before marriage? It's wrong, it's foolish, it's destructive, I know it, I understand all the logic. Or how many Christian singles swear they would never marry an unbeliever? Or how many Christian men swear they would never be unfaithful to their wives? But when they're in the midst of the relationships, when, when, when the feelings are, are, are overwhelming and, and, and it feels so right and it looks so good, it's another matter. Again, Jesus knows what that feels like. And the only thing that worked for Jesus was not the logic of it. See, the logic that sounded so good in the light, the reasons that all made sense, suddenly seemed inadequate and unsatisfying. The only thing he could do, Jesus himself could do, is say, Father, I trust you. Not my will, but yours. And when we find ourselves in the throes of, 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 of suffering, 
or of temptation and the confusion and all the logic doesn't seem to work anymore and all the reasons that, are, that we were told in Sunday school don't seem to, to, to satisfy anymore, all that we can do is trust. Is to say, God, this is what I'm feeling. This is how it looks to me. But not my will, but yours, Father. And to hold on to that trust, to believe him. And notice it says here that Jesus was heard because of his piety. But the fact that he was heard did not mean he got what he asked for. The father heard him, but he said, no, I know you don't want to go through this right now. I know you want another plan, but this is best. See, often we think that because we get a no answer, that somehow God doesn't care. God doesn't love us. Or somehow he's upset with us. And that's why, why he's, he's, he's telling us no. Or maybe we even think he's ignoring us. But the fact is, we're asking for something that isn't the best. It's not that there is some personal sin. It's not that somehow God is offended or repelled by us. Or that somehow he's being careless with us. It's that, <clears throat> excuse me, it's that God has a better plan. And his plan in Jesus' case was resurrection and glory and bringing millions of brothers and sisters to heaven with him. And if Jesus had not gone with God's plan, all of that would have been lost. All of that would have been missed. And the same thing's true of us. When in the midst of these struggles, when we, when we, when we refuse to go with God's plan, to submit to his way of doing it, when, when in the midst of the pain... We try to deal with with our need for acceptance by yielding to the pressure at work or at school. Or, Or we try to get rid of that ache through divorce. We miss God's greater plan. We forfeit His good plans for us and never get a chance to experience them. But again, Jesus knows what it feels like to get a no answer. And he knows how difficult it is to accept that with piety. That's really an unfortunate word, at least in my translation. He accepted it with piety. What does that mean? I don't know. I, don't, I doubt if you guys know. Probably a, a more understandable translation would be, he accepted it with submissive respect. With submissive respect. He respected his father enough to say, I will do it your way. And and not let the, the, the feelings of the unfairness of it all, not let the bitterness or the confusion drown his soul. And again, it's the same thing for us. The same thing, that when we get that no answer, when things don't go as we want them to, as they should be, it isn't fair. But we can respect our Father enough to submit to His way, to say, I'll trust your plan. Otherwise, our souls will drown, our spirits will drown in self-pity or bitterness. Verse 8 has uh, an interesting feature, something that I think is, is kind of fun. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now, in the Greek, it's a little bit different. It says he learned from the things he suffered. 
And in Greek, that's kind of a, a linguistic jingle. It's like, no pain, no gain. In fact, let me read it to you in Greek and see if you can, if you can hear it. It's, imithane off honepithane. Imithane off honepithane. No pain, no gain. We learn from suffering. And that's true of us, and it's true of Jesus. Now, the point wasn't that Jesus was disobedient before he learned these things, before he went through the suffering. The point is that Jesus learned what it was really like to obey in the midst of suffering, and to obey in the midst of confusion, to obey when the pressure was on, and he learned from experience what that's really like so that he could understand us, he can identify with us, he can feel it with us. But he also learned from experience the benefit of suffering, the benefit of obedience in the midst of suffering. In Romans 12, Paul tells us to to give ourselves to God and to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our mind so that we can discover for ourselves that the will of God is good and it's pleasant and it's complete. We don't get ripped off. We don't lose anything in life. You see, we discover how good God's will really is when we actually try it. When we capitulate to our own feelings and opt out and try to escape the will of God because we're afraid of it, we really never have the opportunity to experience how, goods, how good God's plan is for us. And our suffering teaches us very little. In verse 9, in verse 9, we read that having been perfected, again, we've seen that word before, <clears throat> it does not mean that Jesus was somehow imperfect before, uh, before he went through this suffering. But the, the word per- perfected means completed, filled out. And what he's saying here is that having been through the experiences of suffering that he came to experience, having learned the things he wanted to learn about what it feels like, about how to deal with temptation, how to deal with the struggle, having done that, then he became the Savior to all who obey. Then he went ahead and he died on the cross. He made atonement for us. He paid for our sins. And that saving sacrifice is for the benefit of those who obey. Scripture does not teach a universal salvation, that everybody's saved. Salvation is for those who believe. Now, in in Hebrews, you'll frequently see the switching of the concept of belief and obedience. And this is very natural, since when when you understand the term belief, it means to trust. And if you trust God, you obey Him. If you trust Jesus, you listen to what he has to say and you do it. Because if you don't, then you're showing by your behavior that you really don't trust him. That what he says is the right way to go is true. So this distinction between obedience and trust is really, is really not there. Obedience flows out of trust, inevitably, always. And if we aren't obeying, we're demonstrating that we aren't trusting. This is, what, this is simply what faith is all about. Believe in God, trusting Him enough to do what He says. And then verse 10, so I want to finish up this section, comes full circle. 
Again, he makes the point that Jesus didn't push himself into leadership. That was where he started. And he brings it around. He always brings it around full circle eventually. He says, uh, having been called by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, it's God who called him. He didn't push himself. So our writer has demonstrated that Jesus is a great high priest. He was uh, appointed that by God, therefore he is God's representative to man, and he has suffered as we suffer. He's been through life like we go through it, and so he can be a sympathetic representative of man to God. So he's established his assertion, his, his proposition, that we have a great high priest. So now let's go back to verse 14, chapter 4, and see what he wanted to tell us in the first place. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now the picture here is uh, is of the Day of Atonement. That was the one day a year that the high priest would pass through the court of the temple, pass through the holy place into the Holy of Holies. That was the, 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 the place where he offered atonement for the sins of the people. The, the Jews of, the, of, of this time and earlier held that as the most sacred place in the world. In fact, they were so concerned about not violating the Holy of Holies that on the day that the, the high priest went in to the Holy of Holies, they'd tie a rope around his ankle just in case he dropped dead while he was in there so they could pull him out without having to go in there themselves and defile the holy place because it was that sacred to them. But what our writer is telling us is that Jesus passed through the heavens into the true Holy of Holies, the Holy of Holies that the temple is just a picture of. Jesus passed into the very throne room of God, and there he, as our great high priest, has made atonement for us. That he is there at the right hand, installed as our great high priest. So, since we have so great a high priest who's done this for us, let us hold fast to our confession. Now, what is our confession? Confession is a statement of truth. That's all confession is. Now, when it happens to deal with our sin, we're just saying what's true about our sin. But it can be a statement that does not involve sin. When I say God is great, that is a confession. That's truth. And I'm saying truth. So what is the confession that we hold fast to? Well, it's the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. It's the truth about how much God loves us, about how good God is. Because you see, when the pressure's on, when we're in the midst of suffering, when we're in the midst of confusion, of temptation, sometimes it's awfully hard to hold on to that truth. Sometimes it doesn't feel like God is so good. It doesn't feel like he really loves me. It doesn't feel like things are, are, are under control. And so in the midst of those times, I'm told to hold fast to what I know to be true. To cling to it tightly. The term hold fast is, is, comes from a word that means strong, strength. It says hold on, cling with everything you've got, with all your might. When I was a youth pastor, I took a bunch of kids up to the Seven Devils. I had about 35 kids up there. And four of us decided to hike, climb to the top of one of the devils, which are very steep peaks, beautiful peaks. So we got up there, and we didn't have ropes. We should have. Uh, I was at risk of losing my job and everything else. And we were climbing up this one difficult spot 
and a kid got out on a rock face with a good-sized drop, and he froze. He just froze. And so another uh, kid and I had to climb out on a ledge that was a little bit above him, and we had to secure ourselves to the ledge, and then each of us reached down and grabbed a wrist and held fast for everything we had, held tightly to that wrist until we could work him up onto the ledge. And sometimes that's how we have to hold on to truth, just grip it with everything we've got, tenaciously, desperately holding on because we can't let go, because the fall is too great. Hold on to the truth, focus on it, repeat it to ourselves, remind ourselves of it. Don't let it go. He says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Jesus understands. He knows what it feels like, and that's why he cares so much. I've got a, one of the men who works with our children's ministry and our singles ministry in Salt, a guy by the name of Richard Millington. Richard loves those kids. He really pours himself into them. He and Cheryl have kids over to his house. He took about 30 of them uh, sledding last weekend. He just invests himself into those kids, and they respond because he understands. Well, why does Richard understand? Well, because by the time Richard was 13, his mother had been divorced three times. He knew what it felt like. He knew the insecurity. He had been there. And as a result, he really, really cares. The Greek concept of God was a being that was untouchable by feelings. We can't affect him. We can't hurt him. We can't make him happy. Because for God to be affected by us would be a weakness. And God can't be weak. See, they view feelings as weakness. And it isn't so. We have a God who feels and feels passionately. And what he feels is our pain. He identifies with it. He suffers with us. Yesterday at the women's conference, uh, my wife Becky taught one of the, the seminars on how to help people who are suffering, who are going through a difficult time. And, and the, the, the heart of the message that, that she was telling them was that to help people who are in pain, you have to embrace their suffering. You have to hear it. You have to listen to it. You have to let it affect you. And even if you have no words to say, no advice to offer, no answers to give, if you feel their pain with them, you've helped them. Jesus feels our struggle. He knows what it feels like. He understands now, some may say, but Jesus was perfect. He never felt temptation, like I feel temptation. Well, the fact is, he felt temptation beyond what any of us here have felt. You see, we often give up, quit the fight in the middle of the temptation, so we never get to feel what the full pressure is like. Jesus always felt the full extent of the pressure. Last, uh, well, the week before last, I was reading in the Reader's Digest story about some of the prisoners of war at the infamous Hanoi Hilton. And a lot of it was about the torture that went on there. And it was the people who gave in quickly that never felt the full extent of the torturer's skills. It was those who were courageous enough to resist that felt the, the, the torture at its worst. But also what came through in that story was it was those who, who, who persevered, who endured, 
that were the most understanding of those that broke, the most sympathetic, the most encouraging. And the same thing is true of our Lord. He has never broken. He has never given up. He has taken the worst that the enemy had to give. And as a result, he's the most understanding, the most tender with those of us who break. And because he understands, let us approach with confidence the throne of grace. This word confidence, or in some translations it may say boldness, is a great word. It says it means with open frankness, outspoken frankness is what the term means. We come straight in without hiding anything, coming straight at him, just as we are. In verse 13, he's already said he knows it all anyway. Nothing's hidden from his sight. But the reason for our confidence is that we know that he understands and that he cares. And as a result, we can walk right in. Often when we're in the midst of temptation or suffering, or we failed a little bit, we're confused, that's the time we, we, we don't want to face God. We feel like somehow because we've even been tempted that we've already grossed God out. He's already upset with us. He already can't handle us. But that's not the case. That's the time when we need Him the most. That's the time to march on in. Lay it all on the line saying, God, this is what I feel. This is what I'm going through. This is what it seems to me. This is what I'm struggling with. This is where I've already failed. And to receive mercy. Forgiveness to the degree we already have failed, to the degree we already have sinned. And to receive grace, to find grace, to deal with the temptation we are, all, we, are, we are still under. You see, because of what Christ has done, you can come into the presence of God, to the throne room of God, in the midst of failure, in the midst of sin. And like he says, receive mercy, find grace, in your time of need. We were made to be with God. We were created to be in His presence, knowing Him and enjoying Him. But we hang around the door room of the throne, the door of the throne room, and we never go in. We, 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 we stand around, we talk about what it's like inside and how good it would be inside, but we never Venture in. We gain some benefit from being near, from hanging around, but we don't get the best part of it. Actually, going on in. Now we're afraid because we think that He won't really want to see us. I mean, we are unworthy. We're weak. We fail. We're nothing. But we have a great high priest who understands. Therefore, hold on to that confession, to that truth, and march on in. Go do, go be what you were created to be, the, the, the friend of God, enjoying His presence, enjoying His face, even now, not waiting for eternity.